This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for July 16th, 2017. Just how Christian were America's founding fathers? How much did Christianity influence the founding ideals of the United States? And how much influence came from non-Christian ideas of the Enlightenment? In this podcast, I'll talk to an author and pastor who has strong opinions on this. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. On the line now, I have Jerry Newcomb. Jerry Newcomb is the author of The Unstoppable Jesus Christ and also the author of The Book That Made America. That's a book about how the Bible influenced the establishment of the United States. Jerry, we decided to talk about how the Bible influenced the establishment of the U.S. Uh, how do you see that? Well, I think, first of all, it's uh, important to recognize that the earliest settlements in British North America, uh, beginning especially with the, the Pilgrims in Plymouth and then later Puritan settlements, what they did was they made a spiritual covenant and then they wrote it down in paper and they followed essentially the biblical model of covenant and they created these Bible commonwealths in the early settlements of America and it really cast a uniquely Christian character uh, on the country. So for example, the pilgrims, when they were blown off course and they were under no longer under any government's jurisdiction, they created something called the Mayflower Compact. Mm -hmm. And the Mayflower Compact, historians tell us, is really like the, the first step in the process towards the Constitution. And they said, in the name of God, amen, we whose names are underwritten, having undertaken a voyage for the glory of God in the advancement of the Christian faith, and then jumping ahead, do covenant and combine ourselves into a civil body politic. And eventually this, we whose names are underwritten, after about a hundred or so of these Puritan-type documents, which are basically biblical covenant just applied to government, eventually you, it leads us to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, both of which are the same type of things, only in a more secularized way, if you will. In other words, they're a written agreement of self-government uh, signed by the people. Okay. One thing about that, one thing about that, Jerry, is, of course, the pilgrims were some of the first uh, European people in what later became the United States, but they're only a small component of the current population. Is their story any more valid than anybody else who ended up in what is now the U.S.? Well, it's not that – I wouldn't word it that way. What I'm saying is that their influence is very strong. I mean, for example, because the pilgrims got a foothold here, then the Puritans were able to come in, in mass, and they created Boston, Massachusetts, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then later, other Puritans set out in different places. Uh, for example, we have a state here called Con Connecticut, mm -hmm. and it likes to pride itself in calling itself the Constitution State. But the Constitution wasn't written in Connecticut. The Constitution was written in Philadelphia. 
Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, but Connecticut likes to call itself that, and rightfully so, because of something called the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, mm-hmm. which were which was one of these Puritan-type covenants written up by this free Christian people that established their uh, settlement on on Christian principles for the purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They actually say that, and this Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, written in 1639, inspired by a sermon from 1638, the year before, became uh, essentially the the first written full-blown constitution on American soil and was a uh, an ancestor to the U.S. Constitution. I don't know if the people writing that would have seen it as a constitution or whether they even had a full understanding of what a constitution was at that time. Um, but just to maybe have a better understanding of what the uh, pilgrims, first of all, and the uh, the Puritans as a whole were doing, they were coming from what was essentially a theocracy. They left England because Anglicanism was the state religion and you would suffer really very severe civil penalties yes. if you refused to be baptized into the Anglican faith and if you didn't uh, show up at the right church, if you went to the wrong church, you would be uh, suffer quite a lot of discrimination. Yes. But the pilgrims and later the Puritans didn't imagine that they were going from a place that was a theocratic state to live somewhere where there would be free practice of religion. They wanted to create a different theocratic state with their uh, view of religion in charge. That's true, isn't it? I think by and large it's true, and I think in the early stages it was like that. It was an agreement. They were making an agreement together, and in fact you could see this in the example of John Winthrop, who was the first great leader of the Puritans, mm-hmm. who came 1630, they had tried to stay within the Church of England and purify it from within, and that didn't work out too well for them. Then seeing that the pilgrims had made a successful go of it 10 years earlier, they came en masse, and uh, John Winthrop is the one who said, we shall be as a city on a hill, the eyes of all the world shall be upon us, which, by the way, in America is a very famous Hold on, hold speech. on, Jerry. That's quite a idealistic uh, version of what they were doing and no doubt many of them believed that but you can find all sorts of idealistic uh, self-visions of very totalitarian states. These people had the full intention to set up a totalitarian state where at the very best someone who didn't believe in their version of religion would be expelled from the society. Right, and here's what I was going to say, though, about Winthrop, is that after they established themselves in Boston, there were definitely uh, dissidents within the Puritans who didn't get along with the Puritans and, and felt uh, the need to move on, and so they went into another territory, and mm-hmm. they started that. That's exactly where Connecticut comes from, uh, from the Reverend Thomas Hooker and his followers felt that the the, the people in Massachusetts were you know were a little too oppressive for them or whatever. But here's my point: mm-hmm. by the time you get to the time of independence in the 1770s, after all this you know uh, putting trying to put the Bible into practice and and practicing this covenant and so forth, and it not always working out because there were people who didn't always obey and so forth. They worked together 
for the common good and ended up creating this free society. So, yes, initially they didn't extend that freedom if you weren't a Puritan and following, um, you know, that way. But they didn't kill you, by the way. They, there, were, there were some executions, and there, those you can't justify those. There were four Quakers that they chased out of Massachusetts repeatedly. They said, please stop coming here. Don't come here and spread your what they conceived considered false doctrine. And those people kept coming back and coming back and coming. And finally, you they were like tried and executed. That. No, I'm not justifying it. But I'm just saying, I'm just trying to explain and understand what happened. What, what these people did is really not at all different to what uh, Sunni extremists in ISIS are doing to uh, Yazidi today. I think it boils down to, uh, and also to Christians and, and to Jews, and Christians and, uh, to Shiite and, and, and also to even to Muslims of a different type. Yes. Uh, I, and I think I, I, there is no question, there is no question that in Christian history in the past, people have taken up the sword sometimes and, and executed people, and they've they've done uh, they've done that in the name of Christ, and it's brought a black eye on on Christianity ever since. However, and I think this is important to realize, the freedoms that we enjoy in this world are birthed in a Christian milieu. So, for example, Thomas Jefferson, who would be more of a liberal type of Christian in his perspective, he said this, Almighty God has created the mind free, and all attempts to force people to believe in certain things and practice these certain ways are a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion, meaning Jesus Christ, uh, who was both Lord of body and mind and yet chose reason and not coercion as the means by which his faith would be propagated. So in other words, Jesus gives us freedom. Who are we to deny that of others? So okay, in this, hold that thought. Hold that thought, Jerry, for a minute. Yes, go ahead. In that case, the thrust of your argument, I think, Jerry, is that the U.S. Constitution that we have today that guarantees various uh, rights and liberties yes. is grounded in Christianity. And yes. I think there's no question that that is in part true, but it also is grounded in essentially in, uh, I was going to use the word reason, and the, the reason that word comes to mind is because Ethan Allen, who was one of the founding fathers, wrote a book called Reason. He was uh, what would have been called at the time a deist, which now would be perhaps the equivalent of something close to an atheist. Uh, there are differences there, and I'll go into those in a minute. Uh, another of the founding fathers was Tom Paine. Um, he's, and I have a quotation from him here. He said, I do not believe in the creed professed by the Jewish church, by the Roman church, by the Greek church, by the Turkish church, by the Protestant church, nor by any church that I know of. My own mind is my own church. All national institutions of churches, whether Jewish, Christian or, or Turkish, appear to me no other, uh, to be no other than human inventions set up to terrify and enslave mankind and monopolize power and profit. Okay. When people may I, were, may I? yeah, no, no, I want to hold that, hold, hold that yeah, thought in, in one ahead. moment. Let me, let me finish the question. Hold sure. that quote from Tom Paine in mind. And across Europe, not so different from across the Middle East today, across Europe at the time, there were different religious factions who held power in different areas, and they 
terrified and sometimes executed the religious minorities within their area. And a very large proportion of the migration of Europeans to North America, particularly to the United States, was to escape that to escape that level of religious uh, intolerance and essentially that theocracy, and people wanted a secular state. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, I agreed with virtually everything you said up until that very last leap. You see, what America is, is one nation under God, and God is the source that's, of that's our That's an invention of the 1950s. That, 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 that line was invented in the 1950s. Oh, sir, sir, the the birth certificate of the United States is the Declaration of Independence, and the Declaration mm-hmm. of Independence says that our rights come from God. Our rights come from God. The essence of Americanism is that we have God-given rights, and it's up to the state to acknowledge those rights. As John F. Kennedy once said, he said that the rights of man come not from the generous you know, hand of the state, it, but rather they come from God, and we need to recognize that, and the founders recognize that, and they allowed the freedom for people to worship God as they saw fit according to their conscience, and I think that, you know, again, in this crucible where, uh, yes, some original uh, people were trying to exclude others, or they were persecuting those, but initially they were starting out as their own group. So it was like a people who agreed voluntarily to, to sign those things. Now, I want to say something about the Founding Fathers. The quotes from Ethan Allen and the quotes from uh, uh, Payne. Thomas Paine do not, Tom, well, he called himself Thomas Paine, well, whatever. The bottom line is they don't represent the vast majority of the Founding Fathers. There's about 250 men that can be classified as Founding Fathers, beginning with the First Continental Congress in 1774, which, by the way, opened in prayer. Uh, a long, lengthy prayer uh, from the Reverend Jacob Duchesne there in Philadelphia. Anyway, uh, through, let's say, about 1800, there's about 250 men. Of those 250 men, 95%, at least 95%, were Trinitarian Christians active in their church. And even when Tom Paine wrote uh, Common Sense in 1776, which was a tremendous uh, contribution to the American cause, he speaks... Uh, positively about God. Later, yes, he became more, uh, you know, he certainly became an unbeliever and even wrote The Age of Reason and, and in fact, sent a copy of the manuscript to uh, Benjamin Franklin to get an endorsement or an intro or something like that. And and Franklin declined to do that. He said, he who spits in the wind, it'll come right back in his face. This book is not going to help anybody. And, uh, you know, it was almost as if Franklin took a utilitarian view towards religion. And, and the founders felt that basically through voluntary, voluntary religion, the people would be moral. As John Adams, our second president, put it this way, he said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious religious people, it is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. George Washington said in his farewell address, religion and morality are indispensable supports to our republic. They said that. I mean, these are the actual words from the founders. And by the way, that's from his farewell address, 1796. Okay, let's, let's, let's have a look at those. First of all, I think you'd probably agree with me, um, Jerry, that 
obviously the philosophical um, landscape was very different almost 250 years ago. And one thing that didn't really exist was atheism or agnosticism as we would know it today and uh, various uh, people. It, it existed in small ways. I mean, well, it, it well, was maybe, very maybe small. Let me, but let I mean, me put forward yeah. a thesis and, and, and I'll let you comment on it. Um, at the time, geology as we know it didn't exist. So the flood, the story of the of Noah's flood was considered to be literal history in the same way as other uh, histories of um, kings and queens and wars in Europe uh, were recorded, not always accurately, but certainly w including real people. The uh, As well as geology, the ideas that we have about astrophysics and so forth, including uh, the Big Bang and so forth, didn't exist. The idea of evolution of Darwinian evolution had not been created. You talk about it, these things as if they're all proven, but and go on. Uh, um, well, the... And my, I don't agree. My, my, I don't agree my, with my that. My point is... My point is that someone who at the time, well, I think to use a quotation, I think from Sam Harris, he said that religion is essentially a failed science. It's an effort by people who didn't have all of the knowledge and all of the uh, uh, intellectual ability to explain the it world, to explain the world that, that, that they were in. And in some cases, it was an adequate way to explain the world for the amount of knowledge that they had. We now have far more knowledge and it is intellectually possible to be an atheist or an agnostic in a way that it wasn't in the 1770s. But what there was was what is now called, I think perhaps was at the time called deism. And deism was essentially a rejection of religion. It was silent on the existence of God or possibly ex accepted the notion that a God existed because there was no other explanation of the way the world and the universe worked. But it was essentially an a-religious, uh, an a-religious way of explaining the world. And as I say, um, Ethan Allen, Thomas Paine obviously subscribed to that. Others of the founding fathers. Later, later, yes, later. Yes, and again, in 1776, common sense. He talks about the word of God is the king in America. Sure, sure, he says the word that of in common God sense. In that, and that in was that influential sense, but Jerry, at the Jerry, time. The word of but God later, when he loses his faith, he's just a... In, in that in that context, the word of God does not mean the Christian God. The word of God uh, uh, is a reference. Oh, essentially it certainly to the does. You, you're no, no, no. You're committing you're committing an historical error here. Tell me how. This is the same thing with Thomas Jefferson. Okay, I'll give an example with Thomas Jefferson. This is a perfect example. Mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson went through various stages of his life, and the first first major section as far as his religion, uh, why you can see some questions here and there, by and large, he is committed to the Christian God. For example, he helped found as a layman in 1777, a year after he wrote the first main draft of the Declaration of Independence, the Calvinistical Reformed Church of Charlottesville. Uh, or you know, where, which is where he lived in Virginia, and, and this was an evangelical church. They called the Reverend Charles Clay, who was an evangelical pastor. And uh, we have in a book I co-wrote called "Doubting Thomas," all about Jefferson. Uh, two sermons 
printed by the Reverend Charles Clave. They've never been in print before this book that came out in 2014. Here's the bottom line. Later, Jefferson came to doubt some of the major doctrines. But to say that when Jefferson talked about God in 1776, he was talking about some deist God or some, you know, it wasn't the Christian God, is to, frankly, is to read into him, the the skeptical Jefferson of the 1820s, let's say, versus the Thomas Jefferson of 1776. So I think that's historically uh, inaccurate. Let me go back to another point about atheism. You show me any country where atheism has had full sway, and I'll show you a place that has ended up in terrible bloodshed, including all those communist nations and so forth, because there's no greater person you can appeal to beyond the state. Whereas with the founder said was that our rights come from God, and God-given rights are non-negotiables. And that's why George Washington, you know, made it a practice to set up and make sure that there were chaplains, both for the uh, military and then also for the legislature. That's why the U.S. Congress, the Continental Congress, they called for days of fasting and prayer, and they appealed to Jesus Christ. John Hancock, who was the man who signed the Declaration of Independence so large so that George III could read it without his spectacles, Mm -hmm. He later served as a governor of Massachusetts, and he talked about how one day uh, all may bow to the scepter of our Lord Jesus Christ and the whole earth be filled with his glory. James Madison said, it's the duty of every man to render the to the Creator, such homage and such only as he believes to be acceptable to him. This duty is precedent both in order of time and degree of obligation to the claims of civil society. The founders did not create a secular country. What they created was a non-sectarian country. Okay, Jerry, let me just talk a little bit about that. So, first of all, um, I think you're correct that the great bulk of the founding fathers had uh a, a at least a partial christian faith and some of them vacillated uh some of them were steadfast christians i, I don't think that there's any, i don't think that there's any 95% i don't think that there's any doubt about it we're trinitarian let's let's not argue over the decimal point but i don't think that there's any doubt that the majority by far the most relig- the most influential religion there was christianity there's no question about that but the question is so what that's not necessarily the case now in terms of the broad population of the United States. And even if it was, people are entitled to have any religion they wish or Absolutely. no religion. And Absolutely. the ideas to Jesus. of the, and the ideas of the Enlightenment, the ideas of, that led to democracy, that led to concepts of freedom of speech and so forth, didn't come from the Middle Ages in is in Europe when you had essentially competing theocracies they came from the enlightenment time when people were willing to question and people didn't always have the answers but they were willing to say that whatever's in this book is no more valid than whatever than whatever's in the next book we need to William, test you want all the answer of those. to this do you want the answer Go to right this ahead. okay it's very simple there are really two wings of the Enlightenment. 
Mm-hmm. There's the believing side, and then there's the unbelieving side. And here again, we have a switcheroo where the unbelieving side, represented by Voltaire, represented by David Hume, the Scottish atheist, uh, they did not believe in God. They did not believe in the Bible. However, the believing side of thinkers that are often classified as Enlightenment thinkers were very definitely committed Christians. I know a man. Oh, hang on a second. No, let me tell. Sorry, real fast, real fast. Uh, I know a man who graduated with a PhD from Yale University, and he became a born again Christian because while he was studying at Yale, he was doing his thesis on John Locke. That's one of those Christian believing uh, men of the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. so called. Okay, and John Locke wrote a book called "The Reasonableness of Christianity," and this converted Dr. Greg Forster, and and he went on to become a, a Sunday school teacher. I once had. Um, here in my church in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. But anyway, bottom line is that uh, Sir William Blackstone, who's often categorized in the uh, in, as an Enlightenment thinker, he certainly was a very strong, dedicated Christian. He talked about how the Creator impressed in law and in matter His will, and He has revealed Himself first through the law of nature, and then secondly through the revelation through the Holy Scriptures. And he said all human laws need to conform to those two types of law, the laws of God and the laws of, uh, you know, uh, of nature. Jerry, the problem with that is that there is no when there was nothing but Christians, there was really no advancement in thought when the as you would call them the atheist enlightenment thinkers came along, then there was an advancement, including by Christians, but Christians on their own brought uh, very little advancement. I do not agree with that. In fact, you talked earlier about how important science was and so forth, and yet you have to realize, and, and look this up, sir, look this up. You could look up, for example, the re- research of... Um, uh, what is it, Alfred Whitehead or whatever. But here's the bottom line, is that mm-hmm. science, modern science, was essentially a gift of the Christian church to the world. Now, most of you don't realize that. But, the, for example, the Royal Society of London is the world's oldest, long, longest-lasting institution uh, for science. And it's still going on, by the way, and I've been there. I've even conducted some interviews there and so forth. That was born in a Puritan college in the 1660s. Virtually all the original members and all the major founders of all the key elements of science were Christians. It wasn't until the day of Darwin that some people even thought in terms of, oh, maybe there's a discrepancy here. And by the way, I don't agree with, with the you know their conclusion on that but uh, science and religion have been at war uh, with each other since you know the widespread acceptance of Darwinism uh, to some degree but in the meantime it was all Christians who started all this stuff Isaac Newton Sir Isaac Newton probably the greatest scientist ever lived if not the greatest uh, unless it's Albert Einstein but anyway Mm -hmm. Isaac Newton wrote more about the Holy Bible than he did about science so uh, he he wrote a lot about horoscopes as well okay but he wrote more about the Bible and theology Christian theology than he did that's true and by the way as far as the horoscopes are concerned uh, not the horoscopes but the zodiac 
uh, I think a case can be even be made that initially the Zodiac was something that were signs in the heavens to point to Jesus Christ and to point to the fact that we're all sinners and we need a Savior, and Jesus Christ is that Savior. And the Virago, I mean, I don't get into the horoscopes and stuff, but the, the Virgin is, is represented there that has a child and so forth. But I want to say this, because I know we're out of time almost, but James Russell Lowell, was a great uh, literary man who lived around 1900. And he was at a banquet where uh, missions, the, the discussion of Christian missions, you know, was being attacked by scoffers. And he said something, and I, and I think his challenge still applies to today. I challenge any skeptic to find a 10-square-mile spot on this planet where they can live their lives in peace and safety and decency, where womanhood is honored, where infancy and old age are revered, where they can educate their children, where the gospel of Jesus Christ has not gone first to prepare the way. If they find such a place, then I would emigrate. I would encourage them to emigrate thither and there proclaim their unbelief. Wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ has made a huge and positive difference, you can see it. You can see it in society. Even to this day, people will risk their lives to try to get to America because here, uh, you know, and again, we we haven't done everything perfectly by any means. In fact, uh, the evil of slavery and uh, the mistreatment of Indians and so forth. Jerry, Jerry, it's without doubt truth that many... Uh, societies have advanced uh, and many of them are Christian societies and so of course you can find positive correlations with religion and with Christianity. Um, the most Christian, the most heavily Christian country in the world is Honduras. Uh, it's not somewhere I would like to uh, live. I uh, am not familiar in, with my, the my details point being, of you can find a, You can find an example of wonderful and terrible places uh, that are influenced by pretty much all religions. Yes, but it's still true that where the gospel is permeated in its practice, where people believe and understand that salvation is not by works, but it's by by faith through Jesus Christ, because he died for us in our place. You know, William, this is something important to know, because I, I think you need to realize this. We were all created by Jesus Christ, and you may scoff at that and so forth, but I'm going to tell you something. The day is going to come when you will die, and you're going to stand before Jesus Christ, and you're going to give an account for your life, and you will shrink back at, uh, at, at some things. But here's the important thing to realize. God is going to hold us accountable, and all of our sins will be punished. The question is, will we be punished ourselves for our sins by being cast away from his presence, forever, or will we accept what Jesus Christ did for humankind on the cross and accept that sacrifice in our place? Jerry Newcomb, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you, William. All the best. Bye-bye. Never miss a show. You can subscribe to the podcast for free using iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or any other podcast software or app. See challengingopinions.com backslash subscribe for details. 
That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on July 16th, 2017. I have links to Jerry's books and references for the things we were talking about in the show notes for this podcast that you can find on the website. And do you know someone else who I should interview or a new topic I should be covering? I'd be very interested to hear your feedback. If you like the podcast, there's one thing that you could do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes, give the podcast a rating and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page, and you can write reviews on lots of other platforms as well if you use them. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at Challenging O. You can follow Jerry Newcomb at Newcomb Jerry. And most importantly, subscribe to the show for free. You can use Apple Podcasts or Google Play. There's links for both of those and the RSS feed as well if you're old school. And I know not everyone uses podcast software. A lot of people just listen on the website. So you can just go to the website and enter your email address to get an automatic email each time a new podcast goes live to remind you. We won't use your email for anything else. No spam at all, I promise. You can find all of that or get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Next Monday, that's July 23rd, I'll have an interview with the legal scholar, Dr. Ryan Alford, about the strength and importance of the rule of law. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. The assistant producer is Liam McLaughlin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>